Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. This is God's word for us this day. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Will you pray with me? Father, I would ask you that you would help us see a call to righteousness, gospel, and grace in this text. Apply your word to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Last week, we studied Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and God reminded us to break away from our sinful pasts. All Christians, all Christians were formerly darkened in our understanding, hardened in our hearts, and sinful in our practices. But for all who have come to Jesus, we have been forgiven and made new. And God calls us to keep putting off the old self, even as we strive to live in new lives. And the picture of putting off your old self and putting on your new self, that is a picture of a person taking off old, dirty clothes and putting on new, fresh Clean clothes. You guys like that experience, don't you? But can I be honest with y'all for just a minute? It is really quite easy for us to start living like we used to live. It is often quite easy to start thinking like we used to think. And we need the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and other followers of God to help us to keep putting off who we once were. And we need help from God to help ourselves and others to put on our new selves, to wear robes of righteousness, to live in ways that would honor Jesus. And today, Paul is going to help us get started with putting on our new selves with a few simple principles. I will tell you this. Everything in today's passage ought to be obvious. But because we are not necessarily great at the obvious, God has to remind us as he calls us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, let me remind you of one important truth, though, before we get started. There is a context to every passage of Scripture. And today's passage is not the opening of the book. Paul has already spent three chapters reminding you and me of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminded us that all who are forgiven by God are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And Paul is writing to a people who have already surrendered their lives to Jesus, who have already been forgiven. 
So this set of do this and don't do that verses that we're getting into is not telling somebody how they are to be saved. It is telling us how to live now that we're saved. So if you want to take notes, you can make room for three points that we'll get into this morning. Our first point this morning, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul begins with a pretty simple call. Because we have put away falsehood, speak the truth. Remember from last week's passage? We used to be darkened in our understanding. We used to embrace things that were untrue. But when we came to Jesus, who says to us, I am the truth, we put off falsehood and embraced truth. Christians don't lie. The command is that simple. We have turned from old sinful ways. And if we want to honor God, we need to be a people who speak the truth in love. This is not a new command. It is a citation. Zechariah 8.16 has it. Truth-telling, not lying, has always been a mark of the character of the follower of God. In the Ten Commandments, we know God commanded the people of Israel not to bear false witness. Proverbs 12, verse 22 says to us, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Revelation 21, verse 8 includes liars in the list of the people whose eternal destiny is the lake of fire, eternal hell. Revelation 21, 8 says liars go to hell. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul refers to the Lord as God who never lies. He shows us that lying does not match the character of God. But in John 8, 44, Jesus says the devil is a liar and the father of lies. So, are you with me? Lying looks like the devil. Telling the truth looks like the Lord. You with me? Is anybody confused by this? Now the motivation Paul offers us for being truthful to one another is the motivation of unity in the church. Remember, verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4 have focused us over and over and over again on unity. We are to develop attributes that bring about unity in the church. We are to remember that God intends the church be united. We are to use our spiritual gifts to build up the church in unity. And one thing is for for sure, being liars harms Christian unity. So Christians, as you grow in Christ, get rid of the practice of telling lies. And the only way to battle lying, get this, this is, here's some rocket science for you. Here's how you battle lying. Ready? Yeah. Tell the truth. 
If you love Jesus, truth comes out of your mouth. If you love Jesus, lies don't come out of your mouth. Do do y'all need us to take a break and have a big lecture on what lying means? You know when you lie. You know when you use your words or your actions to deceive somebody else. You know when you withhold truth so that you can gain an advantage over another person. Don't lie. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about lying. He he says there was a kind of lying that was prominent among the people, the religious elite of his day. There were people in and around Jerusalem who liked to make big, elaborate, bold promises. I swear by the temple. But they would insert into their words little technical errors, little loopholes, so that they wouldn't have to follow through on their vows. You can read about that in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. And Jesus tells these people, hey, don't, don't, don't even make those kind of promises. In verse 37, Jesus said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Jesus tells the people in the way that you're most familiar with, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And Jesus wasn't there saying you can't make a promise. What Jesus was after is deception, the making of a false promise, the use of tricky words. Jesus says we need to be a people that when we say yes, you know what we mean when we say yes? Yes! And when we say no, you know what we mean? No, we should be a people whose words are trustworthy. Do you guys believe that Jesus' words are trustworthy? You're supposed to look like Jesus. Now, being a truth teller does not mean that you automatically say everything that you think. Telling the truth does not mean that you get to no longer care about people's feelings. Remember, verse 15 of chapter 4 called us to speak the truth. How? In love. In Titus chapter 3, verse 2, we are called to behave with all courtesy toward others. There's an old joke that I think helps us understand the concept here. If you're in court and they say to you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you are not to respond with, yes, you're ugly. Right? There are certain things you do keep to yourself. Telling the truth doesn't mean that every true thing that, is, that exists has to come out of your mouth. It doesn't mean that you get to let all your truth come out in a mean way. That's not what telling the truth means. Now, by the way, it's also at this point in the service where somebody will throw into the discussion the ethical dilemma of, well, is it okay to lie if I'm trying to save a life? Rahab did that. I remember Jericho. I read about it. I did my Bible in a year at least to the end of, well, maybe not to numbers. That's a long way. Here is the answer I'll give you. That's not the situation in view here in Ephesians 4. I'll tell you what. If you find yourself in a situation where you are protecting hidden Jews from the Nazis, you figure it out. 
But for you and me, most of us, most of the time, our temptation to lie is when we want to protect ourselves and make ourselves look good. Isn't that true? So let's not blur the picture by bringing in the rare ethical extremity. Our temptation to lie, it's, it, it's different, right? So here's the deal. If somebody asks you this, did you do your homework? Don't lie. If somebody asks you, did you call Jason like I asked you to? Don't lie. If somebody asks you, did you talk to anybody else about this? Don't lie. If somebody asks you, do you plan to make it to my party and you don't intend to go? Don't lie. You don't have to say to me, Travis, I have no interest in your party. It sounds boring. I'm not coming. (laughs) You don't have to do that. In fact, I would encourage you not to. But you can say, sorry, you know, no, I'm not going to make it. Can't make it this time. Whatever. But you don't have to make up an excuse. You don't have to make up an explanation. You don't, you should not lie to me. So let's just start here. Christians put off lying, put on being a person of truth, and in doing so, you will help the unity of the church and you will look more like the Lord you serve. Fair enough? All right. If you have questions, ask me later. Point number two, do not cling to anger. Do not cling to anger. Look at 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is the next category. Again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. This time he's probably quoting Psalm 4, verse 4. But I want to caution you right now to be careful with how you handle this verse. First of all, Paul is not saying at the beginning of this verse when he says, be angry and do not sin, that therefore you ought to be angry. It says be angry. I've got to be. Neither is this verse telling you that it is wrong to be angry. What this verse is telling you is to not allow your anger to grow into sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. After all, we see that Jesus was angry at more than one place in the New Testament. The Savior expressed righteous anger. When? Think about it. When he drove the money changers from the temple grounds, flipping over tables and cracking a whip. I think Jesus was righteously angry. I know for sure Jesus was angry when there were religious leaders who wanted him not to heal a man on the Sabbath. Listen to this. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Just listen to this story. Again, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So why was Jesus angry here? Jesus asked a simple question. And the religious leaders knew the answer to the question. They knew doing an act of mercy, such as a healing, is perfectly in keeping with the law of God. But they wanted to accuse Jesus. They were willing to let the man with the withered hand suffer and not be healed if only they could gain a political advantage over Jesus. And that thinking was cruel. And that thinking was unmerciful. And that is why Jesus was angry. It was a thing that was wrong. It was a thing that was significant. And it was a thing that displeased the Savior in his godly heart. A righteous anger is the anger we experience, like Jesus, when we look at a situation and we realize a thing is wrong, it does matter, and it is actually displeasing. Righteous anger is the emotion we have when the honor of God is ignored. We are rightly angry if we see the weak treated cruelly. Now, Unrighteous anger comes when you and I allow ourselves to have anger over an issue that's not worth anger. You ever get mad at something you realize later that really wasn't worth being mad about? I only heard three of you and I know more of you are married than that. (laughs) Perhaps we allow ourselves to be angry over a thing that's not actually wrong. Have you ever gotten mad about something and realized you were wrong? That is unrighteous. Maybe we allow ourselves to be angry to a degree, to a level disproportionate to the size of the offense. You ever ever realize that you were big angry over a little thing? That's unrighteous. Oftentimes, we let ourselves be angry, not at a thing that's wrong, but because something challenges our own rule of our own worlds. We get angry because we're not getting what we want. We get angry because people aren't responding to us the way that we want. People don't see me as as important as I think they should. And in most cases, y'all, that's going to be unrighteous anger. Specifically in this passage in Ephesians 4, Paul warns against an anger that you hold on to for too long. That's why he warns that we not let the sun go down on our anger. Anger, even right anger, can come into our lives pretty quickly, but we're not supposed to let it grow and fester and stick with us. Again, remember, most of the context of this passage is about the unity of the church. You're going to recognize here, you and I may from time to time be angry even with one another. 
I don't know if you can imagine church people being angry with each other, but it has happened. I've read books about it. But if we're godly, we don't cling to that anger. We do what we can to solve the problems we have with one another quickly for the glory of Christ. Now, many a situation here, we've got to be careful not to overinterpret the verse. I've known husbands and I've known wives who have exacerbated an argument because they assume this verse means you may not go to sleep without your conflict completely resolved. Elbow your spouse if they've done that. It's okay. That is not what Paul has in mind here. There is such a thing as a genuine conflict in marriage and in Christian relationships, and there are conflicts that are hard to solve and which take actual time and thought and repentance to solve. God is not telling you that regardless of the level of disagreement, regardless of the depth of hurt, you must somehow finish the conflict before you let your spouse go to sleep. God is not telling husbands, if your wife is mad at you for a disagreement, go wake her up and keep her up until she agrees with you. If you've lived a real life, if you've been in a real marriage, don't you understand that conflicts are made significantly worse when you're tired? Tired people tend to the cranky. True? Where's Jared? He's been up all night. Tired people don't think straight. So if you're too tired to think, and if you're so tired that only nasty emotions and harsh words are coming out of your mouth, you might need to set aside the discussion and the conflict until a better time. Again, imagine, you got a married couple. They have walked into the minefield of marital disagreement. Again, this probably doesn't happen to Christian couples, but other couples out there, right? They have a little discord. It gets a little heated. It's 4.50 in the afternoon, and according to my iPhone, sunset is happening at 5.22. Do I only have 32 minutes to solve this conflict, or I'm in violation? Honey, you've got to agree with me soon. That's not the point, and you know it. The point is, don't cling to your anger so as to let it stand and grow. Maybe a thing is genuinely a problem for you during the day, and maybe a conflict is a genuine issue. The biblical point is that you do your work to deal with your anger as quickly as you can. Don't feed your anger. Don't lay on your bed and stew over your anger. Work to let go of your anger. Work to give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. Even if you're really upset about what she said, find, fight, fight, fight against your heart's sinful tendency to make your spouse into a villain in your mind while you're the hero of the story. Remember, 
you have often sinned against your spouse. Remember, you certainly have sinned against God and needed God's grace. Let those facts allow you to turn the heat down on your anger. Even even if everything isn't yet resolved to your satisfaction, determine that you are going to address the issue tomorrow when you're rested and maybe a little more clear-headed. I'm not saying put it off till next year, but tomorrow might work better than today. Now, if a couple is in conflict and the sun has gone down and they're really tired, they're they're like me and they're getting old enough that they want to go to bed by nine, eight on a good day. And they don't see a resolution, right? The conflict is heavy. It's hard. It's painful. We're not solving this in 10 minutes. And I'm tired. What do you do? Well, you don't slam the door and go sleep on the couch. You don't pout and give each other the cold shoulder. You, you work to be a mature enough believer to say to your spouse, listen, I know, I know it's a real issue we need to resolve. And I know it's bigger than we're going to finish tonight. We're both tired. Our emotions are strong. I love you and I'm sorry things have gotten so difficult. Let's try to believe the best about each other. Get some rest and tackle this tomorrow when we're both doing a little better. I think that'll help you soften emotion and not let the sun go down on your anger. It'll help you to resolve the conflict as quickly as you can. Now also, I live in a real world, and so I also know that your spouse may look at you and say, what do you mean we're big emotionally? And you're like, okay, I've read about that happening too. But if we're both being as mature and godly as we can be, this ought to work, friends. Right? Same thing is true in church conflict. You may not solve everything in one quick bite. What we can do is strive to put away our anger and take a break from a conflict and let the emotions settle down a little bit and choose to give each other the benefit of the doubt and commit ourselves not to let the conflict fester and grow and boil and bubble over time. Now, why do we want to be careful not to let conflict grow? Because when we let our anger grow, when we keep chewing on angry emotions, the Bible says we give the devil an opportunity. Remember, dear friends, there is a real enemy of God, the devil, Satan, a fallen angel, wants to destroy the church. He wants to bring dishonor on the name of Jesus. And one of his tools to use to do damage is your anger. When we hold on to anger, when we stew and savor it, have you ever just stewed on your anger? You ever just chew on it and kind of like being mad? When we let our anger grow because we keep choosing to think the worst of each other, 
We allow the devil to have an open door to play on our sin and to hurt the body of Christ. So again, there are things that should stir in us righteous anger. When you hear about a person misleading people away from Jesus into false teaching, you should be angry. When you hear about the evils of human trafficking, you should be angry. When you hear about someone who's willing to throw their marriage away for temporary physical pleasure, you should be angry. When a person sins against you in a significant way, anger is a proper response. But, and this is the point, clinging to that anger, making it grow, just sort of massaging it and rubbing it up to make it bigger, that, that is deadly. Christians are committed to doing what we can to overcome anger with each other especially, especially with each other for the glory of God and for the sake of the body. And we strive to get over our anger quickly so as not to allow the devil an opportunity to hurt us, our witness, our marriages, our friendships, our families, our church. Again, go think in your mind of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked about anger, and he said that it's vital that we work quickly to settle conflicts. In Matthew 5, 21 to 24, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus showed us Clinging to anger or hatred is sin. It is sin in the murder family. Now, no, it's not actually murder. So you can't say, well, if me being angry at you is the same as killing you, I may as well go ahead. That is not good reasoning. Neither is it legal. Jesus is not calling for the death penalty for name-calling here. Which, by the way, remember that, Christians, because the world is getting really close to start calling for penalties for name-calling. But it is a near cousin to the sin of murder to hold on to hatred for somebody. Thus, watching out for sinful anger is a way for you to obey the commandment, thou shalt not kill Some people in Jesus' day thought they could hate people as vehemently as they wanted to so long as they didn't actually physically go after them. Jesus says that's wrong. Instead, Jesus tells followers of Christ that true citizens of the kingdom of God work quickly to bring conflicts to resolution. Christians, anger is a big emotion. Y'all know that, right? 
And it's not always sinful. But anger is powerful. It can be consuming. It can be corrosive. You have to battle your anger. You have to keep it under control. Even as you get ready to lay your head on the pillow at night, you should be looking for ways to set aside anger so as to keep it from consuming you. And you might say, Travis, how do you do that? When the conflict is unresolved, how do I do that? Can I suggest to you, just as a friend, how about remembering the gospel and let that help? We are rebels who have attacked and offended a holy, perfect, loving, glorious God. We deserve from God more anger than we could ever imagine. But our God chose to be gracious to us. Jesus Christ came to earth to die for our sins. Jesus Christ rose from the grave to give us life. Jesus Christ accepts all who come to him in faith and repentance, giving us the forgiveness of God, the right to be called children of God. Jesus protects us from the hell we deserve and gives us heaven, a glorious future we could never earn. Don't you think that the more your mind goes there, the less you can swim around in your anger at a perceived slight or insult? Just look to the Lord and realize that you are not better than the person with whom you're angry. It'll make a difference. The more you trust in the perfect justice of God, the more you'll be able to leave things in his care, even things that cause righteous anger in your soul. Look to the gospel. Watch out for sinful anger. Third point. Work, comma, don't steal. Work, don't steal. 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If you have even a passing familiarity with Scripture, you know that one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal. We all know stealing's wrong. But if you look at our society, you know theft is a major problem. I told you guys in Sunday school who came to Sunday school. How many of you are Sunday school people? Yeah. All right. How many of you all who are Sunday school people think other people should be Sunday school people too, by the way? Yeah. Y'all, if, listen to me. If you don't make time for this, it, it, it's so good. We talk, we laugh, we smile, we make fun of me. It's a good time. But we learn and we grow and we challenge each other. It's good for the soul. I would love for y'all to be a part of Sunday school. There was a Forbes article 2015 that said that companies in America faced inventory losses of up to $60 billion dollars. And in that, law, in that set of losses, employee theft was the number one cause of loss to retailers. Can you imagine that? 
In our modern society, companies are losing billions of dollars to the pilfering ways of their own employees. And Paul knows, as he writes this letter, that there are people who are in the church whose lives used to be marked by thievery. And in fact, it may be that some believers in Ephesus and those surrounding cities have never let those habits go. So Paul is being clear to let the people know that if you have put on Jesus Christ, you can't steal any longer. You see, loving your neighbor as yourself, what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment in the whole law, includes respecting your neighbor's property rights. Both the commandment not to steal and the commandment in the Ten Commandments do not covet your neighbor's things shows that it is unloving to steal from them. So Christians, you might say to yourself, well, of course I know stealing's wrong. I would never steal. I would never do that. I would never shoplift or break into somebody's house and take their stuff. Good, I'm glad. I really am. But be careful. Don't take things that don't belong to you. Be honest in your dealings. Don't take stuff from work that hasn't been offered to you by someone with the authority to give it to you. Don't, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't cheat on things where you gain stuff that's not yours. The alternative God wants us to put on instead of theft is first, hard work. The Bible has always presented hard work as a good thing. Do you guys know that? If you are lazy and unwilling to work, you have a sin problem. Remember, Adam called, or God called Adam to tend and care for the garden, right? You remember that? Was Adam called to take care and work hard in the garden before sin or after sin? Before sin, Adam had work to do. Work is not a curse. Only after the fall of man did work become difficult and painful. It is the result of sin that we think that we should somehow not have to work to earn our way in the world. Laboring, doing honest work, this is right and good. Taking what does not belong to you from others, that is sin. And we see here a motivation Paul offers at the end of this verse. Paul says, you want to work hard to earn a living. Why? You want to work hard so that you can have resources to give. God does not want you and me to be a grasping, miserly, taking, thieving people. God wants us to be an open-handed, sharing, giving people. A Christian friend of mine used to say it this way. He said, you should work hard. You should work honestly to make as much money as you can, as fast as you can, so that you can give away as much money as you can, as fast as you can. Not terribly wrong. We don't work hard for worldly materialism. You shouldn't be working hard so you can have the nicest house on the block. 
We work to honor God, to care for our families, to care for our church, to show hospitality, to support ministries of all good shapes and sizes. We work hard so we've got something to give for the glory of God. That looks Christian. Now, you know what's so hard as we look at these three commands? Do not lie, do not give in to sinful anger, do not steal. You know what's hard about these? The hard thing is, I think, if we're honest, all of us have been guilty to all three of these at one point or another. Guilty of all of them at some point. In your life, you have lied. Go ahead, deny it. You'll be lying. In your life, you have had sinful anger. In your life, you have taken that which does not belong to you in one form or another. The evangelist Ray Comfort would say to you, there's a name for those who tell lies. Guys, what do we call people who tell lies? Liars, right? There is a term in the Bible for those who cling to sinful anger. Jesus says it's murderer. Matthew 5. There's a term for those who steal. We call them what? Thieves. Did I hear someone say congressman? That's... We all should know this though, right? Lying, thieving, murderers. Are those good people? No. No matter what else you and I might say, we are not by nature good people. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve His justice. We deserve hell. Thanks be to God for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus never committed one of those sins. Jesus lived a perfect life. And Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. You ever thought about that? Jesus died to pay for your lies, your anger, your theft. God the Father poured out on Jesus his perfect wrath for every sin we've ever committed. And Jesus died perfectly taking upon himself the wages of our sin. And Jesus, after he died, rose from the grave. And Jesus is alive right now. And Jesus welcomes a sinner like me and sinners like you into his family. He says, turn from your sin. Trust in him. Surrender. Surrender to him as Lord and find life and forgiveness through his finished work. If y'all don't know Jesus, I urge you, come to Jesus today and be forgiven. This text has shown you you have not lived a perfect life before God. So come to Jesus and be forgiven before you face the judgment of God. And if you're a Christian... Put off the old self. Take it off like dirty clothes. Put off your old sinful ways. Put off lying. Put off sinful anger. Put off theft. 
Put on honesty instead. Put on mercy. Put on a hardworking, giving heart. Repent of your old ways. Not, not that grace, it earns you grace. It doesn't earn you grace. Repent of your old ways to honor the one who gave you grace. Put on righteousness to glorify Jesus and find deep joy in your soul. Let's pray together, dear friends.